our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Welcome to our Louisiana Eats podcast series, Quick Bites. I'm Poppy Tooker. Have you ever heard of Aura King Salmon? If you listened to last week's Quick Bite with Maya Lee of Lenoir Restaurant, you have. For those who didn't, Aura King is a sustainably raised salmon from New Zealand whose story is almost as delicious as the fish itself. Back in early 1900, two avid fishermen somehow managed to bring live king salmon home to New Zealand from a fishing trip to California. It turns out the salmon love it there, and the rest is Aura King history. Aura King is only available to the restaurant trade, where it's developed a cult following with top chefs like Thomas Keller and Emeril Lagasse because of its pristine quality and flavor. As judge of this year's Aura King competition, it was my job to travel to Austin, Texas, Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles, California to taste the creations of the three top finalists. On today's podcast, we visit finalist number two, Yael Peet of Karasu Restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. Located in the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn, Karasu is kind of a Japanese food speakeasy. To find the tiny little restaurant, first you have to walk through Walter's Food, an airy American eatery where they serve oysters and clams on the half shell, burgers, steaks, and chicken. At the back of Walter's, there's a narrow hallway that ends with a door. Open that door, and your eyes will have to adjust to the darkness before you can take in Karasu. With barely 30 seats, the dimly lit space is both intimate and romantic. That's where I met Yael Pete, a former animation student turned chef whose dish, the Sorcerer's Apprentice was a bit of magical salmon cookery. Yale, I'm so tickled to be here at your magical little speakeasy Japanese restaurant. Explain to me exactly where we are, because I think a lot of people wouldn't quite believe it. Well, I befriended the owners of Walters many years ago. And behind their little American bistro on the corner of Fort Greene, there was a chiropractor's office. Yes, that's for real. And when the chiropractor's lease ran out, the landlady offered them this space. It's intimate. You can't get in through the side because there's apartments and it's dark. And they said, what would be appropriate for a space like this? And they said, oh, well, you know, an intimate cocktail bar. There's nothing like it in this quiet neighborhood. And they saw a niche that needed to be filled. Um, unfortunately, they really don't know a lot about Japanese cuisine, and that's where I came in. I, I got a phone call from them after not hearing from them uh, for a while, uh, hoping that I could help them put together a menu. And when I got here, the chef had decided to leave. So this is about two weeks before they wanted to open, and I became this de facto leader which is really quite scary and exciting. Um, you know, restaurants can be, I mean, it's taboo, but they're abusive and they're difficult. And I was leaving a situation where I was really overworked and really unhappy. And this was my new chance to create a healthy environment 
where, you know, I was in control of myself and had my own autonomy. And my friend Alina uh, had just moved back from Tokyo a couple months after we opened. And we instantly bonded. And she, you know, brought her family's recipes to the table. And we became partners. And Karasu has flourished ever since. Now, I'm here because you are one of the finalists in the Orking Salmon Competition. And your dish that I'm tasting right now is simply magical. And I would love for you to talk me through all the elements of the dish, the concept of the dish. Tell me all about it. All right, let's start with the tangible things, the dish itself. So I started with a roasted Aura King belly fin because I really wanted to do a coach component. And the fin is a special part of the salmon where you only get one or two portions. Then I followed it up with a hot salmon dashi that I made by smoking and drying the tail fin of the Aura King for three months. Those were my main Aura King elements and I wanted to bind them conceptually in a cohesive dish. So I did that by creating a kind of classic soba and broth by making my own buckwheat noodles. And I finished it up with a bunch of different leek elements, uh, raw, fried, and roasted, because I wanted them to be an incarnation of the Fantasia broomstick, which was not edible and was on fire in your bowl. (laughs) Now explain why Fantasia. Why was your art inspiration all about animation? My original major in college was animation, and actually, when I heard that the Aura King theme was art, I was really, really excited, but I didn't have any direction. Um, There were a lot of different pieces I was looking at, but then my professor, who I hadn't seen in nearly a decade, uh, was in town for Pride Week, and she asked to come in for dinner, and I was really excited because she was a really, really stern woman and when I uh, dropped out of college she was hurt she was personally devastated and she couldn't understand why I was giving up on my dream you know she looked me dead in the eye and and was just confused Uh, but she had seen everything I was doing with food and was really excited to see where I had you know taken all this hard work and what I had funneled it into so when she came by that's when I got inspired to do something based off of animation. It felt, it felt so obvious, like just after about, you know, a month of thinking about it. Um, you know, and when I did see her, I was just in tears because she was really proud. And, you know, she, she finally understood why I was doing what I did. Let's go through each piece of the dish. Um, for instance, that magical creaminess that's inside some of the little circles of the leek. Explain that. Explain every one of the elements. Well, I kept the leek raw because when I knew I poured the hot broth over it, it would become tender and you really needed that crunchy element. But I also wanted to keep this motif up of wells that catch because in Fantasia, you've got this out of control broom filling the well until it completely overflows. Uh, the belly was also, you know, I wanted to take a piece of salmon that's not normally used, that's underrated. Because once again, you've got this theme of being the underdog and the underrated person and the mistake maker. Because 
Sorcerer's Apprentice wasn't my first choice of the Fantasia shorts. There are others that I personally enjoy more, but Sorcerer's, Sorcerer's Apprentice thematically felt the most appropriate and felt the most like my own story. Because um, I, I sat down and decided to, to watch Fantasia. Um, it was one of the first animations that I fell in love with that felt like art and not, you know, a cartoon. Everybody thinks animation is a cartoon and it kills me because it's really just thousands of pieces of art strung together to move. You know, I, th I think animation is one of the most devoted forms of art there is. Every little piece from the dried element to all the way to the sheaves of wheat. Let's go through everything that's in the bowl. And I think what is really amazing is the creaminess inside the leek translates into the broth. Yeah, it really binds with the fat of the salmon because for a good broth, you want to take your fat elements and your water elements and emulsify them. So they work together to create that effect. Um, I also wanted to take the leek and really achieve a myriad of textures. Um, so we've got our roasted belly fin. We have bright, clean ikra, which I think is always a proper companion for salmon. Uh, the leek rings, the fried leek, the roasted burned leek accident, which ended up being such a beautiful, almost like um, mimicking the soba. It almost has a noodle component when you pick it up. As well as the Chinese broccoli, which I say he, it. <laughs> Everything's got a personality. But the Chinese broccoli has been carried over from all of the versions of this dish that I researched and developed. And it was actually steeped and chilled in the dashi. I just once again wanted to bring that brightness and um, some color on the plate because the leek is a beautiful green, but when you roast it, you kind of lose that. So the broccoli kind of came back in as its supporter. Um, as you can see, I also have like a heavy circular kind of theme going on. And I wanted to keep those round shapes. It's beautiful. And even the bowl was specially made for this dish. Yes, um, I reached out to a local ceramics artist. Her name is Minami, and she runs a little shop called Soto. And it's above a restaurant I like to go and eat at in the morning alone all the time. Uh, so naturally, I wanted to work with an artist if the theme was art. And I had her design a couple of amazing plates for me, only to realize, you know, after all this trial and error that I wanted to do soup, and I'm scrambling oh my God, soup is never going to work on a plate. And she was so kind and made me a big, beautiful obsidian bowl. And I brought all the versions of her work here to show off how hard she worked on this. I love the way also you have the element <clears throat> of the dashi going into a teapot. Let's, let's talk about that process and what is in there that you poured the broth over. And Take me through that process, because I'm really amazed that you went through that three-month drying process to create the flakes to make the broth with. When I heard Ogre King was having a competition, um, and I decided to compete because I've never competed like this before, I said I was going to push myself as hard as I could conceptually, and something I haven't seen anyone do is dry the salmon. So as soon as they said they were having a contest, before it was art, before it was Fantasia, 
because I knew it was going to take at least two or three months, I said, I'm just putting a salmon tail in the dryer and we're going to see what happens. Because dashi is really the base of a lot of the food I use at my restaurant. And I thought, theoretically, if you can make katsuoboshi, this dried katsuo that enhances soup, it can be done with salmon. I chose the tail because I needed the leanest part because katsuoboshi isn't quite as fatty as the Ora King. Then I smoked it with hickory, threw it in the dryer. Uh, my first batch actually in the drying process got wet and molded and I cried for a long time. <laughs> but I got it going again. Um, and when the theme was finally announced and the soup was finally conceived, um, it all wove together. And I loved my dashi so much, the components of the kombu, the salmon, the mushrooms. There's even some dried leek in here as well. Uh, I wanted to show it off. So why not a glass teapot? It's really a lovely dish. And I love this animation tie-in. It's just really fascinating. Yale, I'm very curious how someone who is studying animation decides to become and then becomes a chef. Where in the world did you acquire these skills? Uh, growing up, I cooked a lot. I had a single mother and she worked a ton and we grew up cooking together. So I always kind of had a base skill set. And when I went into college, the thought really wasn't what am I going to do afterwards? I went to college to learn and to hone my craft. But about halfway through, you know, that looming notion came by. What am I going to do after I graduate? And it scared the crap out of me. And I think it, I think it scares a lot of college students and young people aren't prepared. They know what they love to do, but they haven't concentrated on how they're going to do it for a living. Well, I, I've got one more question about this growing up thing. So yes. where did you... Where did you grow up, and what were you and your mom cooking at home? Not this kind of food. No, definitely not. Um, I was born in the city and grew up in New Jersey with her, um, and I grew up in a Jewish family. Not super religious, but very, very warm and connected. So I was making a lot of Jewish food, like big briskets for the, big, the high holy holidays. Um, and I still do that to this day for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Passover in the restaurant for my staff. So you just missed it about two weeks ago. <laughs> um, but that's the kind of homey food I grew up making. But when you learn how to cook, there's kind of base skills the same way with art that you can apply all over the genre. If you can braise, saute, steam, fry, make a sauce, those skills are applicable to any kind of food if you just separate the ingredient from the skill set. So I'm in college. I'm throwing a lot of little dinner parties for my friends. And I expressed the fact that I was at a loss because animation was going digital and I was doing everything by hand. And, you know, that, that future was coming toward me at a rate I wasn't ready to handle. And I thought to myself, how am I going to sit behind a desk for 10 hours a day in front of a computer? That, that really, really makes me miserable. And how am I going to have the willpower to freelance and create my own work and put myself out there? Because I think a lot of non-artists can't even 
fathom how difficult it is to be your own boss. So I was freaking out. And my friend said, well, you, you love to cook. It keeps you on your feet. It has a lot of structure. Why not look into that? And throughout my sophomore year, the idea just kind of kept growing and growing and growing with me until I decided to move back to New York and start working in kitchens. I think I was antsy too, just to start working and stop studying. I was you know, in high school and um, I felt like it was time to, to be an adult and be accountable for myself. So what sort of food did you begin cooking professionally? Well, I, I moved back to the city and did a course at French Culinary Institute for about a year. And I knew I really wanted to be making handmade pasta. So I worked with a bunch of different restaurants learning uh, Frankie's, Aldi Law, Prune, and that was kind of my primary directive. Um, but I also found that getting up very early wasn't really working for me either. The nine to five schedule, that's another component of how I realized I couldn't work in an office. But the dinner schedule of working in a kitchen line at night was so riveting to me. You know, it's, it's a performance. The orders are different every night. The demands are different. There's so many variables and I, I really embraced the challenge. So I started working the dinner line and that immediately felt like the right fit, even though I was barely making enough money to live and I was, you know, working 12 hours a day. It still, it still felt right. It gave me the energy to do it. You touched earlier on the climate in professional kitchens as a young female. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I'm really happy to say that I've noticed so many improvements and from the stories that I heard of the generation before me, there's a, a lot of things I have and probably will never witness, and I'm grateful. No throwing pans and knives and hot things at each other. Um, I've dealt mostly with a lot of civility. Um, the, the only thing I still see chefs fighting with is their, their own vices. The job is demanding, and I see a lot of drinking and, and self-abuse and it, it's really, it's really hard. It's really sad. So how do you, as the leader here, as the co-leader, how do you all set the tone for the kind of workplace you want it to be? Well, we would never throw anyone at someone's face. <laughs> but I, um, I naturally gravitated toward women-centric work environments. Um, it's kind of funny how when the leader of a restaurant is a woman, so many other women gravitate toward her. They feel safe. They feel confident. They say, oh, that female chef did it. She succeeded. I can learn from her. I, I feel protected by her, and I see myself in her. That's how I felt when I had female leaders. So that's what I'm trying to do, though I feel a little young to be a role model, but I'm hoping that... With time, I can establish that kind of safety for my peers. Well, it all starts at the top. So another thing that I'm really curious about is how did you learn Japanese food? Japanese food, the cuisine of Japan and all of its various areas and types is so complex and so different from what we know in the Western world. So you were making pasta. 
how do you make this jump into buckwheat noodles? Well, Japanese food was always a secret love of mine. And it was a cuisine that I never really thought I would be invited into learning. But I started working at a Japanese restaurant where most of the people weren't Japanese. They came from all sorts of countries and all sorts of walks of life. So it was kind of a new wave of people who were interested in the cuisine, but were also not afraid to let new people in. Um, and I, I loved that. But they were doing very, very high-end food, and I wanted to be more approachable to my neighborhood and my customers and my friends, which is how I moved out of that kind of tasting menu environment, that exclusive environment, and into something, yes, intimate, maybe you could call it speakeasy-esque, but still neighborhood. You know, it's, it's where everybody lives. They're not going to a destination spot. It's not unapproachable. And tell me about your partner in this establishment, because she is Asian. Yes, um, her father is Japanese, and he moved to America and met her mother, which is, you know, she's got an amazing story. But um, I was running this operation alone, and I knew I needed someone who I could really trust and rely on. And not only could I trust and rely on Alina, but she also was bringing her family's recipes to the table and her techniques to the table and showing me things that I could never learn as a non-Japanese person. You know, um, so we both, both brought a lot of skill sets together, our, our passion to be successful and organized and good leaders, and then she brought a lot of her culture, which I am endlessly, endlessly thankful for. But if you think about Japanese food, because a lot of non-Japanese people are making it, I think a lot of people are asking why. You know, it's why, why Japanese food? Because I'm Brazilian, and I don't see a lot of non-Brazilian people in the city making Brazilian food. So I myself was kind of curious. I really am. Um, but if you think about it from an artist's perspective, because that's, that's where I got down the rabbit hole really far. Japanese food has a very, very long history and a very, very wide breadth of techniques, more so than almost any other cuisine I've seen from any other culture. So as an artist, don't you want to have the biggest range of tools and colors? Like, I just think the Japanese palette provides the most technique and diversity compared to anything I've ever seen. Their culture lends to it. I mean, when you think about tasting menus and kaiseki, they were doing that a thousand years ago. That's wild. It really blows my mind. <laughs> it, it is wild. It's absolutely wild. What is the experience of the people who come here to dine with you? Tell us about what it's like to come for dinner. I think a lot of people are surprised because they're expecting sushi. So they get to enjoy a lot of dishes they've never seen before uh, because that's kind of our niche. We like to explore izakaya fare, which is pretty approachable pub fare, um, but also blending it in with the kind of things that you would eat at your grandmother's house in Japan or the kinds of things that locals eat or the kind of Japanese ingredients that are in season that are really hard to come by if you're not looking in the right place. Where do you get your ingredients from? 
Um, there's this amazing little old man. He has a farm called Suzuki Farm, and it's in Delaware. So he's a little Japanese man growing Japanese ingredients. And, and I've never seen things like Mizunasu, which is water eggplant, or Negi, which is, uh, it's called scallion or called leek, but it's really a vegetable of his own. And for whatever reason, for the love of the produce, I figure, because I don't, I don't know why anyone else would have such a small scale farm, but he's producing it, you know, only a couple of hundred miles away and I'm lucky enough to get it. And sometimes I have to get things straight from Japan, which is unbelievably difficult. The, the distance that it travels for people to gobble it up, I don't think they realize the journey it takes to get here. You'd rather them eat it a little slower and look at it maybe a little longer before it goes down the gullet? Oh, oh yeah. Um, we get uh, fresh bamboo shoots in the spring, and they're all individually wrapped in newspaper so they don't get too moist. And someone came in, and they were really drunk, and they said to their friends, oh, I think this bamboo is canned. And I was over here in the kitchen. They think they can't, that I can't hear them, but I'm right over here grimacing. But, you know, I can't run over there and say, you don't even know. But um, a lot of a lot of restaurateurs and chefs would. A little bit of education goes a long way. And, you know, there's also nothing wrong with canned bamboo shoots because they're only in season for about three to five weeks. So I could see why people would rely on those things. Like the availability is is very limited. And I think that makes for beautiful food, to highlight things when they're available. Yeah, one of the things that I find amazing about you is that you've got this beautiful little sort of Japanese restaurant speakeasy in the back of this much larger establishment. And you have some responsibility in the front as well as the back. Yes, so uh, Alina and I run both restaurants. That's why we're co-chefs. So, so tell me, what's the restaurant in front that people have to walk through to get into your restaurant? So Walter's is a neighborhood American bistro that you have to walk through to get to Karasu. And about six months into Karasu, going into the new year of 2017, we realized that it would be better for the staff, front and back of house, and morale to combine teams you know, Walters felt a little jealous of their pretty new little sibling. And, and Karasu felt that too. You know, we wanted to be friends and we wanted to be united. And I also rely on the staff in that kitchen to grill my steak and fry my tonkatsu and karage because I don't have a fryer or grill back in Karasu. There are no vents and there's no gas line. So we decided to become a united front. And it's worked out really well. So I work at Walters half of the week. And what do you do there? I flip burgers. <laughs> I do all the ordering. I expedite and, you know, train and support my staff. So they feel like we're all one family. And we also combined the ordering. There was someone doing ordering up there. We're doing ordering back here. When, hey, we all use the same lemons. We all use the same potatoes. So it made sense to even bring the inventory downstairs in our prep area as one area because we're, we're Siamese twins, the two restaurants, and we need to work together. Well, you probably even have the same walk-in, right? Same walk-in. Speaking of walk-in, let's walk into your little teeny, teeny, teeny postage stamp of a kitchen. You said 
No gas line. No gas line. You said uh, no hood. Well, what do you have for cooking back here? As you can see before you, I have four induction burners and a toaster oven. <laughs> I am. And how many people do you feed every night? Um, anywhere between 70 to 100. That's quite a trick. I also have my rice warmer here. So you can see why it's so important that we work together with Walters and how I'm always in this building because two restaurants requires my full attention. <laughs> I've also got a college mini refrigerator behind you and one full state-of-the-art low boy who is humming for you right now. She decided to sing for you. Walk me through the ingredients that you have at hand here. In Karasu, because we have limited equipment, we've designed our dishes around them. Alina and I, oh my God, we love tempura. We love tempura so much, but we can't do it because the fryers in the front are too busy and we don't have any oil back here. So that's kind of an example of, hey, we got to work on our limits. We've created a steam table on one of the induction burners to do steamed custard. Uh, we also have a braising pot to do things like oden. Right now we're doing butakakuni, which is like a braised pork belly. So steamed and boiled dishes work really well back here as long as they're steaming nice and low. Otherwise, this restaurant gets very, very warm. I'm sure it does. <laughs> that, that, really how, does. How, when did you figure out that heat might be an element um, to the positive and the negative? Uh, pretty early on, because our owner was pushing us to make gyoza, which are dumplings. I told him, it's never going to work. We're going to smoke the place out. But he pushed and pushed. So I made them. And ran it just to prove to him that the restaurant quickly filled with smoke and oil. So he let that go after a week. Thank God. Um, so we focus a lot on sashimi to show off the kind of fish that are in season. We just do one or two. And on a lot of seasonal vegetables because salads are obviously our strong suit in this little kitchen. Um We've got kind of composed salads with vegetables versus leafy green salads. Um, and then kind of more traditional Japanese dishes like ohitashi, which is uh, chilled greens in dashi. And uh, moroku, which is cucumber with unground miso. Because people say, oh, what is miso? So miso is just fermented soy and grains. But the smooth stuff that you see has been blended. So moromi miso is all chunky and you can actually see the soybeans. Uh, yeah, so focusing on those cold dishes really saves us in this tiny space. It's quite the undertaking with uh, two people and one sous chef, but she's going full time, so it's three people now. <laughs> Congratulations. It's a, it's a big deal, you know, being your own butcher, your own prep cook, your own line cook, and also being a manager and a chef. It's quite a deal. And how old are you? 28. And... I wouldn't have it any other way. I joke to people, I'm like, oh, I'm like a line cook, but I don't have a boss. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think the dining, the dinner service part is really fun. And I understand why a lot of chefs leave the line. I mean, it's really demanding hour-wise. You don't get out of here until one in the morning. Um, but, you know, I feel like even though I'm a leader, I'm also still learning. Yeah, have you been to Japan yet? Uh, yeah, I was just there last spring, and I hope to go again this spring, hopefully. And my partner is currently there 
right now, right outside of Tokyo, uh, visiting her grandparents. It's been really fun getting the pictures of them uh, picking chestnuts and making dinner with her grandma. So I'm glad she could enjoy seeing her family. When you went to Japan, how long had you already been making Japanese food? Um, about three years. But, you know, people always said, I can't believe you haven't been. Like, why don't you just go? And, you know, I work a lot. And it's it's an expensive trip. It's a, it's a trip that takes a lot of devotion. You can't just go lightly in our line of work. So even though it took a long time to get there, you know, it was the top priority on my list. And I, I just can't wait to go back. When you were in Japan, what were some of your personal misconceptions that were dispelled? Um, I think people don't realize how difficult it is to get into high-end Japanese restaurants. So when I went to Tokyo, I wasn't prepared to be so lost in a, in a culinary fashion. And the other thing that was dispelled for me is the sheer size of Tokyo. I don't think people realize that Tokyo is as dense as Times Square, but it's as big as Los Angeles. And when I say that, I still don't think it sinks in. I can see people's eyes kind of confused. But when you get there, it's this unending labyrinth. So you kind of don't know where to begin. And um, restaurants in Tokyo kind of keep a certain level of exclusivity because they really run on merit and they would rather be feeding their regulars who have been patroning their restaurants for 30 or 40 years than tourists who just want to check a place off of their list. And I feel for them. I understand why they do that. And when you came home from Japan, what were the flavors that you brought back with you that you wanted to replicate here? Well, I was there in spring, so we're going back to that bamboo shoot situation and when I was in Tokyo I bamboo shoot at almost every meal um, so you know that became the staple of April for sure and I think when it comes to fish with Japanese uh, food American people are always thinking about sushi but one of the most beautiful things I saw especially in the spring is when they lightly broil white flesh fish in dashi um, and we haven't done that back here yet because of Karasu's constraints. But I know that Alina and I hopefully plan on doing something that delicate and simple. Why is the restaurant called Karasu? Karasu means crow. And this was kind of our crow's nest. The owner thought of the name. And while he was hunting for decor for the restaurant, he found a little crow statuette. And that kind of unofficially became our mascot. Did you name him? No, actually, it was our owner who just would refer to him as Karasu, and that's, that's how we got our name. <laughs> how often does the menu change? About every six weeks, and we are changing it in two weeks during the Aura King Awards. Oh. So because of that timeline, that's one of the things keeping me here. But overall, it's exciting to be in a contest and representing womankind and to be in the contest with another woman you know it it really means a lot to me um i had a a male rival recently say oh well you've already got a leg in the door you know because you're a woman and the focus is really on women right now and i didn't actually punch him 
though I considered it. But I looked at him and it's like, it's really funny that you feel that way, that you're not in the spotlight because you are in all of these competitions and you are getting all of these awards. You know, you're blind to your own privilege. So I felt extra compelled to, to do something like this and to stand forward and to represent other women in my field and to, to succeed. There's nothing like success. And I'd say you're on to that success thing. What do you think is in the future? When you dream, what do you dream of? Well, I'd really like to work in Japan in the future. I have a friend working on a farm out there where they're really enjoying bringing people in from all over the world to learn about farming and to learn about Japanese suburban culture outside of, you know, visiting as a tourist in cities. So I, I hope to do that eventually. Um, Alina and I hope to get a restaurant that has a hood and a gas line. We really do. We really hope we can um, achieve that and to bring a kind of more complete dining experience to people. Um, and I also hope to move out of New York and kind of get somewhere a little closer to nature. That's kind of like my end goal. Now, you're doing all this, and you shared with me that you have a husband. So how do you balance all these things? I don't really see him. <laughs> uh, we, we both work in the industry, and um, I think, you know, a lot of people, and especially women, have made sacrifices in their careers for their relationships. And I do not fault them for that, but I think their actions are noble and underappreciated and in my relationship and its ups and downs I said to him I'm a chef I'm working full-time and I'm working a lot and I I'm, don't want to compromise that and he basically agreed and that's the history of it it really is I've dated a lot of people who've said you work too much I want to spend more time with you and I understand a partner's needs but it's just not a high priority for me, and that is okay. It's okay for a woman to follow their dreams in work, and it's okay for a woman to prioritize herself. Do the two of you ever talk about having a family, and how do you think you might ever be able to balance that if that is something that you perhaps would entertain one day? Um, in general, as a female chef, I see this conversation come up a lot, as well as with Alina, because she's 32, and it's, you know, it's on her mind. It's on both of our minds. But when you're a male chef and your wife has a baby, it's never going to be as demanding on your body and your time as a woman. There's just, if someone is willing to come up and bring an argument to me, I am welcome for debate, but I have spent many years thinking about this. And um, having a family isn't necessarily a traditional goal, nor will it be approached traditionally for me. I'm really open to adoption or having a child later in life. And I love kids, especially with being an animation major. Like, I get along with children really well. And it, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't make a good mother or a happy mother. But Karasu is my child, and, and this is my focus. Well, you're doing a great job. It has been an incredible thrill to have this opportunity to come to Brooklyn and eat at Karasu and taste your magical, magical food. From the moment that you lit the broomstick, I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> I'm so glad. It, it feels so good 
to get the teapot and the and the vase and the craft all lined up and ready. I'm just so glad we could do this one-on-one -on -one because if there were guests in here, they would be like, what is that and how do I buy it? Kind of, I feel like um, especially bar guests can kind of be very Veruca Salt, like I want it now, <laughs> you know? So to, to do a dish that requires that much attention, I'm just really glad we could do one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I am too, and thank you. Thank you so much, Yale. This has been an incredible experience, and big congratulations. Of course. Thank you. It was such a pleasure meeting you. That was Yael Pete, co-chef of Brooklyn's Karasu Restaurant. If you enjoyed today's show, don't miss our upcoming podcast featuring the last contestant, Jonathan Granada of Otium in Los Angeles. And... Catch Chef Maya Lee's podcast in a previous Quick Bites episode. Then, find out who wins the grand prize in an upcoming edition of Louisiana Eats. You can learn more about Aura King's amazing salmon and fantastic story by visiting their website, auraKingsalmon.co.nz. You'll find a link in today's show notes. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss a delicious serving of Louisiana Eats. Visit poppytooker.com for lots more recipes and delicious food ideas, too. Louisiana Eats original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Thanks to Sarah Holtz, who produced this podcast, and Maddie Mulladew, our social media maven. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. I'm Poppy Tooker. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our major sponsors, Camellia Brand, Zatarans, and Rouse's Markets. Visit poppytooker.com to see a full list of our partners. This Louisiana Eats Quick Bite was produced by Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>